Welcome to Break Bias. I'm your host, Brad Kramer. It's the 23rd episode, the Alex Albon episode, and we are finally back, guys. Just like that, it's race week. And I have to say, I I don't know if my life has just been busier this year than uh, last year, but the 2021 summer break felt like an absolute eternity. And this year has flown by for me, so maybe it's also because that a lot has happened in the F1 world, and uh, last year I don't remember as much going on, but uh, because there's so much to get into for even a preview episode, let's talk about some Belgian Grand Prix so we can get to everything that we need to talk about. It's lights out and away we go! Starting off, shout out to my boy Dimitri, aka Dimster who has been to Spa Francorchamps, and he was nice enough to give me some inside info on some of the track changes that have happened at everyone's favorite circuit. Okay, it might not be your favorite circuit, but let's be honest, who doesn't love Spa? If you don't like Spa, honestly, uh, just just grow up, okay? Just, just grow up. <laughs> um, anyway, there, there are gravel traps at some corners uh, now, uh, notably Turn 1, that used to have tons of runoff. Like, I feel like Spa, we always saw drivers, like, trying to go around the outside at turn one, and then they end up just, like, completely off the track, going wide, trying to, like, get back onto the onto the tarmac. Um, but, yeah, the at the same time, runoff has been added to a bunch of places, most notably Eau Rouge. That's kind of the corner that I think, even though Spa is the longest track on the calendar and has so many iconic corners Eau Rouge definitely like is this is is this it symbolizes Spa Francorchamps, no doubt about it. And it looks quite a bit different this year. It's got a grandstand sitting above it now, um, on the left hand side. There used to be um, this chalet there. That's not there anymore. Um, and I believe there was a grandstand off to the right side, and it's gone. I, I might be a little bit wrong on that, but yeah, um, Spa is going to look a little bit different. And I can't help but think that these changes are being made because of the uncertainty um, around Spa returning to the F1 calendar. I certainly hope that it will return because it is an absolutely gorgeous track, pure racing uh, track, probably has the most character out of any track in F1, besides maybe a few, like you could argue Monza. Um, Monza has a ton of character, and that is an absolute classic. Um, or Monaco, I mean, Monaco just, it oozes character, it just doesn't ooze anything racing-wise, but Spa has, like, that perfect mix of both, like, it is a pure racist tract with so much character, yes, it's in the middle of the forest, which, um, is a bit of a problem, but for a track like that, I think it, I think a track like that adds to the calendar, not, we don't want every single circuit on the F1 calendar to be like a Las Vegas that we're going to see, or like a Monaco that is in the middle of a city. I think to have these like scenic tracks that are kind of like Austria. Austria looks like it's up in the mountains, and I think it's beautiful. Silverstone's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. I think it was an old airfield. Um, I think those are some of the coolest tracks in F1 as well. They don't all have to be in a city or nearby anything really, like any big city. I just think that a variety actually makes for a better, um, a better watching experience or experience for kind of everyone involved. But with that being said, I, I don't think anyone besides maybe the big wigs at F1 want to see Spa gone. Cause I think 
it would be an absolute tragedy. And I think a lot of racing purists would be absolutely infuriated if Spa didn't return. Yes, there are some safety concerns. Like, I don't think people wanted to see the Nürburgring go. And it kind of is gone for a good reason. Um, the original layout, of course. Um, but, yeah. No, I, I think Spa's got to stay. But, anyways... I don't even think that the track changes is the storyline going into this race. It is absolutely the new floor rule that is finally coming into play. Guys, I, I swear to God, it actually is coming into play this time. I have reported that it was going to change like three times now. I think I said it was happening in Silverstone, and then I said it was happening in Austria, and then I said it was happening in France. I've never been more confused by news reports than that until in France I finally got some clarity that... It was 100% coming to Belgium, and it is, so I promise. Um, I feel like this whole thing might be a little bit overhyped, um, but I would definitely keep a close eye on the performance of the top teams over the next few races. Um, Zandvoort is the next race after Spa, and they both offer significantly different challenges, um, so it will be interesting to see if there's any big performance differences after those two races. So keep an eye after both. Don't just react after Spa because you can't react after just one track. Formula One can be very track dependent. So if you see um, even small teams make a jump, let's see how they do in Zandvoort. Let's see how the big teams do at both races because they're very different. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I don't think that it will change as much as people hope it might. Um, but I am most certainly looking forward to it just to see if maybe Mercedes can make a step forward or let's see if Red Bull and Ferrari are just that much better and these these type of things aren't really going to affect them. Um, but yeah, uh, of course, I usually try to talk about last year's race um, for each event. Like uh, in 20, for the Spanish Grand Prix preview, I talked about the 2021 race and how uh, Mercedes kind of pulled off a strategic masterclass. And in the, in the French Grand Prix, Red Bull kind of returned the favor. Um, but there was no 2021 Belgian Grand Prix. Uh, it was, it, it technically happened, but it was the most farcical thing that I've ever seen. And I can only imagine if you actually attended that race. I'm not sure if my boy Dimster did go to uh, that race. I hope he didn't because I don't think he would have got his money back for seeing basically only three laps under a safety car. Um, to be fair, we did get an unbelievable qualifying session, um, provided it provided us with one of the best quality laps that I've ever seen. Um, that George Russell lap stuck him on the front row in a Williams ahead of Lewis Hamilton in a Mercedes. That will go down in history, I think, honestly. I, I really hope that lap doesn't get forgotten because, yes, we've seen other great qualifying laps in the past. Um, I know Lewis Hamilton 2018 Singapore gets brought up a lot, but there's been plenty of good qualifying laps. I don't even think that is the best qualifying lap ever. It, it, it was very special, but I honestly just hope that this George Russell lap is, is remembered. If George goes on to have a world championship winning, very successful career, I think people will look back at this and be like, that is when he showed his true brilliance. Yes, George has had other great performances, and, you know, making Q3 in Austria in the Williams. Um, I, I think that he showed promise at other points, no doubt about it. Um, but that was a special moment. And 
yeah, that was that was unbelievable. And I'm a Lewis Hamilton fan. I've said that before on this podcast. But I was so happy for George that day. Like I, I don't think I've ever posted on socials more than when I saw that George Russell lap. Like that that blew me away. Um but yeah, then we get to the race and uh I spent three hours of my life watching a bunch of sleeping drivers in their garage and a couple laps behind the safety car. But to be fair, we did get a fastest lap from Nikita Mazepin. Had we not had that, um, that that uh, that definitely made the day at least somewhat worth it. And we see like Schumacher playing soccer in the Haas garage was kind of cool too. But or did I say Schumacher? Schumacher and Vettel, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, the last proper Belgian GP that we've had is actually in 2019. And uh, yeah, that was a dark weekend to say the least. Um, F2 driver Antoine Hubert tragically passed away in a horrific multi-car crash at the top of Eau Rouge. Um, yeah, uh, R.I.P. Antoine. I, I, I it, it's hard to talk about that. That was very, very um, tragic. I don't know. There, there's really nothing else to say than that. Um, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I, I actually feel so bad. I should remember his name. The driver that was also involved, I think he is still recovering because um, he, he, like, shattered his legs. Oh, uh, that actually really bothers me that I don't remember his name. Hold on. I'm actually – I'm going to remember his name. Um, just stand by. Okay, it was Juan Manuel Correa, right? I, I honestly thought it was Correa, but I didn't want to get it wrong either. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty sure Juan Mel Correa is still recovering, actually. Um, let's, let's find that out, too. Oh, wow. I didn't even, I didn't know that. He actually, he actually made an inspirational return to racing less than two years on from the shocking accident at Spa that saw him suffer serious injuries. Oh, so he he has returned. There you go. I I didn't even notice that. Well, that's amazing for him. Yeah, no, just what a what a horrible incident that was. Um, and I I really apologize for forgetting his name. I I actually feel terrible that I did. Um, but yeah, no, that was that was brutal. But more happened that weekend. Actually, uh, that weekend also gave us the sacking of Pierre Gasly at Red Bull and the subsequent promotion of Alex Albon. And, of course, for you Charlotte Claire fans, that was his first win in F1 with the uh, sus Ferrari engine. Um, in hindsight, Leclerc's whole, he won at Spa, he wins in Monza thing was, was kind of funny when you think about it. Because, I mean, like, first of all, preface this, absolutely epic commentary. Um, and honestly, so sick to win at Monza in a Ferrari. And Leclerc drove great both weekends. I'm not trying to take away anything from Leclerc. But people who know this know that those are the most power-hungry tracks in F1. Like, Spa has a ridiculous stat of, like, 80-something percent of the, of the track is full throttle. And Monza, everyone knows, that is, like, where you see cars have the smallest rear wings because you don't need much downforce there's a couple slow chicanes 
Um, Ascari is is a fascia cane, parabolica, like a, a little bit, but it's mostly straights, and the top speed is is crucial. That's why at I think it was 2019 as well, where you saw that crazy qualifying where everyone was just addicted to trying to get a toe because the top speed is what matters. But anyway, I digress. I just thought that was kind of crazy. And to be fair to Ferrari, actually, I, I am just remembering that they won three on the bounce in 2019 and Seb won in Singapore, and that is not a power-hungry track. So fair play to Ferrari, I guess. They had a decent car that year, but Mercedes was just Mercedes. Um, but yeah, uh, sh- uh, before I get into my predictions, just quick shout-out, 2008 Belgian Grand Prix as well. Hashtag Hamilton got robbed. Um, so what are my predictions then? Uh, I think the power hungry nature of the track, like I just mentioned, will help Red Bull's case. They are definitely the least draggy car. Um, and I don't think that the floor rule is honestly going to change that. I think they got a great engine, a very low drag machine. And I think that will help Max Verstappen put, put the car in pole position. I think he drives really well this track it actually is a home race for him a lot of people always remember that he's dutch because obviously he raced under the dutch flag but he is a belgian dutch driver if you look it up so he is part belgian and this is kind of a home race for him most of the fans at the spa francorchamps track are max verstappen fans i know my boy dimitri is a max verstappen fan uh, um so i i think they will be happy to see the dutchman on pole and I'm going to have Charles Leclerc slot in behind him. I think it could be close, but I'm going to say Max edges him out. And I'm going to shout Perez P3. And I know for anyone who listened to my summer break recap, I have Perez not finishing on the podium for the rest of the season. That one was one of my wildest predictions by far. Um, so I guess we'll see who I have um, who I have on the podium. So just just give me a sec here. I have in the race Verstappen converting the pole to another win. P2, I have Lewis Hamilton again. Lewis Hamilton finishing P2 for the third consecutive race, making it six consecutive podiums. And then I have Carlos Sainz finishing P3. And basically, my reasoning is that Ferrari will bottle it with Leclerc because Honestly, do I really have to give a legit reason or a legit prediction as to what will happen with Leclerc and Ferrari? Because it basically happens every race that he will either blow up, like his car will blow up, or they will just screw him over. So why would I think that anything else would happen at this point? So yeah, I'm going to say that Hamilton and Sainz both catch Perez, and they take the podium positions from him and I think Leclerc will probably finish last out of the top six because that is what seems to happen <laughs> um for real though I I do think that Perez will have a very good shot at a podium at Monza and Spa I think those are absolute Red Bull tracks because of their straight line speed they seem to have a massive advantage on the straights over every team so if, if they can keep Perez off the podium in those two tracks, I think my prediction is actually looking pretty decent. Although he will be very strong in Mexico as well. So we'll see. I, it probably won't happen. That is a absolutely wild prediction. 
But anyway, speaking of bold predictions, I have to make a bold prediction for this race, and that is that Haas will score double points. They have not scored, I believe, since their last double points finish, and I think that their drivers are equally matched enough that when their car is good enough for double points, they'll both be there. Haas has a very good, um, how should I say this? They have a very good habit of screwing themselves over even when they have a strong car. But I think, you know, um, Mick is going to have the big upgrade. Um, and they have decent straight line speed. I think they kind of showed that in Austria. And, you know, Lewis was complaining about the straight line speed of the Haas. And, of course, that is somewhat of a, of a setup thing. But, you know, I think that they they might do well. And Spa has a very good chance of raining as well. I haven't checked the forecast. But they've showed the capability to run pretty well in the wet. So, uh, yeah, let's go Haas. Now, let's, let's finally get into some real silly season talk for this year. We haven't gotten into any real stuff yet, so we finally get the chance. Let's do it. All right, I was so close to retiring this segment until Sebastian Vettel announces his retirement. And then it all goes haywire right before I took a break from doing regular episodes for the summer break. Um, So I'm not going to break down the whole Oscar Piastri fiasco. We have enough stuff to talk about. And it's been well documented at this point. If, If you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe you can pause the podcast and just look it up, you know. Basically, every news source has beat me to this story at this point. I mean, I kind of just called myself a news source, which is kind of hilarious. But, yeah, you know, like, it's been, it's out there. I'm, I'm not breaking anything here. Basically, every little detail of the story has been out there now. So, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to break down the whole thing. However, I am going to give my thoughts on who will join Esteban Ocon at Alpine in 2023 now that Alonso and Piastri have kind of both chosen not to drive for the French team. Um, So this is all speculation at this point. Um, And yeah, obviously it's not confirmed what will happen with the the Piastri thing. He said he's not driving for Alpine next year. I think he's going to stand by that. I think he will honestly reserve for another team before he drives for Alpine at this point. So I will not be counting him as a candidate. Uh, Alpine themselves say they have 14 people show interest in their seat, but I mean, I could say I'm interested in their seat and they would probably say it's 15. So the true candidates are, uh, as follows, Daniel Ricardo, Mick Schumacher, Joe Guan Yu, and Teo Porcher. So I chose those four, um, for, because I think they have the strongest candidate, candidacy, candidacy, um, and there's a few people that I've I've heard kind of mentioned or thrown out there, and I just don't see them as real options. And I'm gonna quick just go over them real quick. The big one that I just I really want people to understand is Pierre Gasly. Pierre Gasly is not going to Alpine. Yes, it seems like like on the surface it seems like a good career move for Gasly to get out of the Red Bull family and join a team that's at least decent. But not only guys is Al is he, Gasly is locked in at AlphaTauri, according to Helmut Marco. Anyway, he according to him he has an he has no exit clause, so Gasly can literally not get out of his contract unless AlphaTauri want him out of his contract. And why would AlphaTauri? Why would Red Bull want to lose Gasly? 
for nothing. Like, he is the leader of that team. They like him there. He's already signed. That might have been Gasly's fault. But at the same time, it would also be an absolutely toxic driver pairing at Alpine with two guys who do not get on. Yes, they're both French, but I don't know if you guys know this, but Ocon and Gasly do not like each other. They race each other growing up, and they do not have a good relationship. So I don't think it would be a great idea to kind of plant Gasly with Ocon, who we've already seen kind of get a little nasty with teammates. Like he just, what he did to Alonso in Hungary after (laughs) Alonso is the reason he won in Hungary the year before. Um, And I'm not sure if Ocon knew Alonso was leaving, but like he did the same thing in Saudi Arabia. So I don't think it was anything to do with that. Ocon will battle his teammate very, very hard. And with a guy like Gasly, I can see that relationship getting very sour. And I don't even know how I didn't even mention Sergio Perez right there. Anyone who's watched Drive to Survive knows well that Ocon and Perez did not get on well. Or if you just watched that season because they could not get out of each other's way. Um, anyway, that's just not going to happen, guys. Gasly is not going to Alpine. And also, I just don't see guys like Hulkenberg or DeVries or Latifi um, joining Alpine um, or anyone in F2 for that matter besides Porcher. Uh, Magnuson, I've actually also heard shouted out, but he does have a contract with Haas, and I think he likes it there, and it's just a great place for him. Um, he used to be at Renault way back in the day, and I don't know. I just think that's a weird fit, and I, I just really don't see that as a legit option either. The only one that I, out of those I've named that have an outside chance is I think Hulkenberg, just because of the familiarity, and he would be an absolute last resort. But I could see them going to him as a last resort for like one year and look for like a replacement the next year. So anyway, let's get into the real candidates. Daniel Ricciardo is the obvious one. He would need to get bought out of his contract at McLaren though. And who knows what his relationship is with Alpine at this point. Because like he'd have to feel comfortable going back there. Because he kind of ditched them for McLaren. And... The, the positive of going back to Alpine is, of course, should he leave McLaren, it's the only other place for him that would keep him in a somewhat competitive car. So, yeah, he'd have to consider going to, like, Haas if they dropped Schumacher or Williams if they dropped Latifi. Just, yeah, not great options. Or Alvatari if they dropped Sonoda. And I just don't think either side would be interested in that. So honestly, I think if Ricardo chooses to leave McLaren, it's because he feels comfortable going to Alpine and Alpine are welcoming him back. I don't think he chooses to get bought out unless he has job security somewhere else. That's kind of how I see it going down. I don't think he's just going to go into the open market and yeah, like just take the money and go into the open market and hope it works out. Like I think he's lining something up beforehand and then he'll take the, the, to the buyout. So it would be awesome to see him go back to Alpine and just kind of like race against McLaren next year because they these two teams do seem like they're kind of aligned to fight for the best of the rest for a few years now because I think Ferrari will be strong for a few years. Red Bull and Mercedes are going to be there. And I can't really see Alpine or McLaren making that big of a step. So these guys might be rivals for a few years. Anyway, the next one. I I can I like I'm adding adding him into a serious candidate, 
But to be honest, I think Schumacher is probably even like the least likely of the four. He would have to show some serious promise for him to be considered in my eyes. And if he were to perform that strongly, Haas would probably just keep him. But the um, scenario that could allow for this is Haas giving up on Schumacher early. And then because Schumacher's out of a seat at Haas, he, you know, he said himself that he performs better under pressure. Maybe he starts performing really well after Haas had already signed a new driver and then Alpine give him a shot. And, you know, the Schumacher name has to count for something and, you know, his junior career and his age. Um, So I don't think it's a strong possibility that Schumacher goes to Alpine, but I think it is more possible than, you know, I I think that um, Schumacher might be a better option than Hulkenberg for Alpine, even though I think Alpine does want to compete now and Hulkenberg might be better for that, but they just lost a big part of their future in um, in Piastri and Schumacher is worth maybe a go if they see something and who knows what Alpine sees anyway the future part is kind of more of a point for these next two and I think I can talk about them in the same vein because Joe and Porsche are both involved with Alfa Romeo Joe is currently not signed by Alfa Romeo and I think I would be pretty surprised if they don't keep uh, the Chinese rookie but if, you know, they want to give their young hotshot prospect a go, like Porsche, um, Joe, who was an Alpine junior, could become an option to Alpine because they have Bontas locked up. He's not going anywhere. I think he's a great leader for their team. Um, and Porsche might be ready to move up. I know some people don't believe that he's ready. Um, so if, if Alfa Romeo don't believe he's ready and they keep Joe, who I think has had a decent rookie season, I think that opens up the opportunity for Alpine to try and snipe the most, uh, the next most promising young talent, I should say, um, in Porcher, because let's be honest, Piastri is the hottest property out of the young driver market, um, and after that, I think it's definitely Porcher. I think it's more him more so than Chargent, um, because I think, you know, Porcher could replace exactly what they had with Piastri, and, you know, Porcher is younger than Piastri, and he's also French, which I think their all-French lineup would be completed with Porcher actually more so than Gasly, because I think Ocon and Porcher could maybe get along. I'm not sure what if they have a relationship or anything, but anyway, I think Alpine might have to suffer a bit in the short term if they went with Porcher, because um, like I said, some people don't believe that he's quite ready, but with their limited options... I think it would be a pretty smart investment to to try and get him. The only thing is if, uh, you know, you have to worry about loyalty because I think even if Piastri somehow ended up in that Alpine seat, he ain't sticking around because of this whole fiasco. So when you, when you invest in a young driver like that, you want to make sure they stick around at your team. And, you know, if Porsche is only taking the seat because, um, because he gets a seat in F1, and there's a pretty good likelihood that he just moves on, then maybe it's not really worth the investment. And he'd rather just win with a, a guy like Hulkenberg, or not win, because let's be honest, this guy hasn't won anything. He hasn't even been on the podium. But if you'd rather have his points more so than Porcher's in the short term, you know, there will be another driver market in the future that you can try to bring someone else into the fold. So, yeah, it's hard, really hard to know the actual possibility um, of this happening. 
but it is definitely one of the more interesting scenarios. Um, so yeah, like I said, there there are some last resorts for Alpine, but I think those four are the um, best candidates. And if I had to predict, I would have to go with Daniel Ricciardo. Like I said, he is the obvious one. And I really do think that McLaren is going to try to do whatever it takes to get Piastri in their seat as soon as possible and not make him reserve for another year. But um, I really do think that Piastri will reserve if Daniel chooses not to uh, not to go. And yeah, um, I just don't think Daniel is going to be interested in a low-end team. So, you know, Cyril is gone. Um, so why not come back to Alpine and try to shove it to McLaren in 2023? I think that would be a very classic Ricardo move to somehow just get his all his performance back and have like some ridiculous performance. Um, and you know, it's going to be a big story on Drive to Survive, like I said in the summer break recap, because somehow Daniel Ricardo just performs when he wants to sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I I can't imagine Daniel has burned too many bridges at Enstone. Like he's the nicest guy ever, so. I think they would welcome him back. It's just whether or not he feels comfortable going back and whether that's something he'd be interested in doing. So, yeah, I really think the ball is in Ricardo's court. And at the end of the day, I just think he's not going to want to stay at McLaren when they don't want him there. So why not go back? Uh, so, yeah, now let's talk about a big announcement in F1 over the break. Just when you thought you were getting your head wrapped around these brand new regulations for 2022, we get even more big changes coming to F1, or at least an announcement about one, after the FIA approved the engine regulations planned for 2026. Yes, we're, we're talking that far in advance already. Um, before I get into perhaps the more interesting layer of the story, I want to quickly just mention what some of those changes will be. Um, I apologize in advance. I'm going to get a little technical because these, this news is all technical stuff. So I can't just not get technical on the podcast when this stuff is literally technical regulations. So I'll just go over it really quickly. There's going to be an increase in electrical power, um, with the MGUK delivering three times the power as it currently does. For those who aren't familiar with what the engine components are, the MGUK is responsible for feeding waste kinetic energy back to the energy store that can be used in form of ERS that helps propel the car. Um, the engine will run on entirely sustainable fuel um, and half the fuel than what was consumed by the cars in 2013, which I think is pretty incredible. And all battery materials will be recycled. There's, there's a few other things, but I think those are some big points that people can understand. Um, it's clearly just a move towards sustainability while maintaining the performance that is required to hold on to the title of, you know, the pinnacle of motorsport that is so often mentioned by F1 themselves and everyone involved. However, the biggest change of the engine is um, all about this component that will no longer be in the PU, and that is the MGUH. So the MGUH and the MGUK kind of worked in unison along with the uh, the turbocharger to feed the, it's kind of all part of the uh, energy store and the electrical part of the uh, engine or the power unit, I should say, because F1's power units aren't just engines. An engine is part of the power unit. So anyway, the MGUH is a very complex component of today's power units that is responsible for feeding the energy store as well but it generates the energy from excess 
exhaust gases, not from the waste energy. Like MGUK stands for Motor Gen- Generator Unit Kinetic, and the other one is heat. So, yeah, um, I bring this up, and I, I wanted to explain the MGUH, and I mentioned that it is very complex because this is basically the contingency that Audi and Porsche had to enter F1. They needed it gone, and if they weren't getting rid of it, then they won't join, essentially. Like, it was it was that clear-cut. So, F1 got rid of the MGUH, and now Audi and Porsche look poised to join the sport then. And now I haven't completely delved into this whole Audi and Porsche stuff because, you know, it's so far away, and I've put my F1 focus elsewhere, I guess you could say. Um, but I do know a little bit, and from what I have heard, Porsche is most likely going to partner with Red Bull, and, you know, possibly supply engines as well as slap their name on the team. Like, right now it's Red Bull powertrains. I'm not sure Red Bull powertrains is going to exist for very much longer. I think it might go back to Porsche or even back to Honda in the meantime. I'm not sure. Um, but, yeah, while Audi, they're, they're more so looking like they're going to join the sport as a constructor, but probably not from scratch. They'll probably look to uh, do it in the way that Aston Martin or Alfa Romeo have joined the sport where they've taken over Force India slash Racing Point, um, and Alfa Romeo took over Sauber. Sauber. Um, and yeah, there's also the Andretti bid that is still hanging around. Um, and we actually got a quote from Mercedes team principal Toto Wolff saying, quote, Andretti is a great name, and I think they have done exceptional things in the U.S. But this is a sport, and this is a business, and we need to understand what it is that you can provide to the sport. Um, Mary Andretti, by the way, was an F1 world champion in 1978, if you didn't know that. So yes, he is a very big name in the sport. And he clapped back and said that he believes that Toto has too much power in F1. And I'm not going to spend time speaking to that. But I do want to say that I think what Toto is saying that, you know, adding more teams dilutes the sport. It's another thing he said. Um, I think that's only true when you have teams like Marusha and Caterham, and I, I'm only mentioning these two teams because I just watched a couple old races from 2013 and 14, and like those cars were so off the pace that there's just like, what's the point of being there? And I think that dilutes the sport. Like I don't want to see teams that are just two laps down every race, and even if the craziest things happen, like they just don't have any pace, even over midfield teams. I don't want to see that. But if the teams are actually competitive, I think the more the better. How awesome would it be to have a grid of 26 cars and they're all closely fighting? I, I think that would be exceptional. So, yeah. Am, am I really excited about this announcement? I would have to say not really. But, you know, well, the engines sound cool. The engines sound pretty awesome. I'm not talking about that announcement. But the Audi and Porsche side of things, it's, it's not like it's something that I'm really, really excited for. It is big news. But... Are, are any fans really like, yes, Audi and Porsche, like, I'm so happy that they're joining the sport, and yada, yada, yada. I think it was actually an interesting take from Tommy at WTF1, and basically what he said is that he essentially doesn't care at all about manufacturers joining the sport, and he doesn't think that they add to the sport, manufacturers as in car manufacturers, like Mercedes and Ferrari and Aston Martin and Alfa Romeo, and yeah, you get it. Um, and his example was that, you know, Force India Racing Point, 
they used to be seen as an underdog. And now Aston is one of the most unlikable teams on the grid. And, well, I, I don't quite agree. I think car manufacturers are great for the sport. And, um, no, but, but I do understand how you might not care like that much that, you know, that they're likely on their way, Audi and Porsche, that is. Um, and yeah, like he said as well, I would prefer that they start from scratch than, you know, piggyback onto another team. Like for sure, that would, that would be a lot more interesting, but you know, it is what it is. And for example, you know, Sauber has never been as competitive as what they once were when they had BMW alongside them. Um, when they had Nick Heidfeld and Robert Kubica driving for them in, in uh, 2008, they were, they were a brilliant team that year. Um, with, they got plenty of podiums. And Sauber was still a cool team when they had BMW. Like, I, I don't see the issue there. But, and, you know, honestly, the the Aston analogy also is a bit invalid because the reason why people don't care about Aston anymore is because they fell backwards. Had Aston become, like, a top three team, I think people would love Aston Martin. So, yeah, no, I, I just think it's the whole stroll thing. that People just love to hate on the strolls. And the fact that they've kind of gone backwards since 2020, not to mention the whole controversy of 2020 with copying, copying the Mercedes. I just think that it's the way that they've carried themselves, not so much the fact that it's become Aston Martin and not Racing Point. I think that actually makes them more marketable. They just kind of blew it by sucking. <laughs> There's really no other way to say it. Um, so, yeah, I think they can absolutely propel the brands. Um, so... Yeah, I see, I see car manufacturers as a positive, so I don't quite agree with that take, but I get where he's coming from. So guys, uh, farewell. I am off to Nashville for the week, and I will be back just in time for the Belgian Grand Prix, so don't you worry about that. And I am so looking forward to another post-race podcast, hopefully because I am recording this podcast quite a bit ahead of time that we don't miss any big news again. But if we do, I promise I will mention it on next week's show. Or maybe I will throw something on my TikTok addressing the news. Um, I did do that with the Piastri thing because I did miss it and I knew I wasn't going to have any episodes. So, you know, follow me on TikTok if you want to see more content from me, a little bit more up-to-date stuff as well, and some fun content that I throw on there all the time. Um, I'm really trying to grow that as well as the podcast and hopefully that they can help each other out hand in hand. So that will do it for the Alex Albon episode of Break Bias. I'm your host, Brad Kramer, and I'll be back with episode 24 next week to review the Belgian Grand Prix. I gotta say, it feels great to say F1 is back. Goodbye.